0: To the first episode of our new podcast, Language for Liberation, a podcast where we seek to define and give language to the issues of today and solve them through philosophy. I'm your host, Bakari Ibrahim. I'm the chief storyteller of the Sustainable Culture Lab. And I am joined today by my co host and illustrious guest, uh, founder of the, the Sustainable Culture Lab, Mr. Bear Holmes Pittner. What's up, bro?
1: I'm not much, man. You know, just doing what we do, having a good time, dealing with all the
0: chaos happening. Um, to be frank, you know, we're kind of sitting back and watching the world burn uh, <laughs> right now. <laughs> and it's, it's been a lot of chaos, you know. Um, we've been talking literally since like quarantine started, you know, talking about COVID-19 and how it's been affecting the community. And it seems like weeks before we we're going to possibly emerge from our quarantine, we now have another issue affecting the black diaspora and the, the black American and it's it's causing us to you know think about our philosophies again you know that that's where it's at right now man so how you feeling
1: <laughs> it's hard to say that i anyone feels good or that i feel good but like having a a philosophical foundation i think has helped me have some clarity throughout the covid crisis and also what's happening following george floyd i think if you don't have like a philosophy or words that anchor your thoughts or your action, it's really easy to get focused and consumed with how much, you know, how much existence is just constantly in flux and be, you know, overwhelmed with anxiety or whatnot. So like, I strangely don't have that much anxiety, but
0: I know I, I have a good perspective on what's happening. I think. So let's bring the audience uh, in, in a little bit more on what we're talking about. So, To give you guys the situation at hand, over the last six to eight weeks or so, you know, there have been three high profile police brutality killings. You know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery are just three of the hundreds of Black men and women who have been murdered by police, uh, not just this year, but many years before this. You know, we've had this conversation pretty much every year uh, since the advent of social media and before then, because this goes way back. Uh, into <laughs> our years, <laughs> but we'll get to that. But you know what's unique about this situation is that as the days have progressed over this week or ten days or so, we've seen massive demonstrations and massive protests. Um, a lot that have been peaceful, some that has turned to uh, violence and rioting and even looting. And with that, you know, looking at the situation that we're dealing with and people that are going through a public health crisis, uh, mass unemployment, capitalism reeling, it's ugly head everywhere you turn. (laughs) And now to hit with this police brutality killings. And it seems like it was just the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot more Americans than it was the last time that we had to march into the streets and do these things. So, you know, I want to have a discussion today about, you know, how this may be a little bit different. You know, what are your initial takes on, you know, the situation and the philosophies, like you said, that we can uh, give language to uh, learn from and then hopefully find some solutions to where we move forward. But to kick things off, you know, Barrett, you said that you weren't necessarily surprised so you don't have any anxiety about, you know, this news or how things have been playing out. Uh, why is that?
1: Anxiety regarding like COVID or George Floyd or both? Which, what what are you thinking? Uh, George Floyd. George and, Floyd. Um. So I'll say Trump's response the other day regarding like, you know, the use of force and bringing out the military and trying to send military into states. That was like the first time I had some anxiety about how how this could look but then today and yesterday came about and the response to that to those like threats of of force were met with like peaceful protest and like a a continuation a decision to like you know work with but also disobey the curfews um, Mm kind of brought back like the sense of calm that I had had before and so like I look at this like philosophically and at SCL we we part of our philosophy our language is the word ethnocide and mm-hmm. it's it's a tough word to like come to grips with but it's it's necessary and that word it's the destruction of culture while keeping the people and if you look at the transatlantic slave trade like the destruction of african culture while keeping the people was foundational for that process yep. It was destroying the culture of African people in any way that we can imagine. And by we, I mean colonizers, clearly not black people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like colonizers were, they took the language, the religion. They wouldn't let Africans wear traditional hairstyles or clothes or eat their food. They broke up family and tribal bonds. And so I I bring this up because when you look at, at ethnocide, you realize that this ethnocidal structure was like the founding of our country And that our racial divisions today are manifestations from this foundation of ethnocide. And so within this foundation, there's always been black people trying to free themselves from ethnocidal oppression. And throughout history, there's going to be various attempts at, you know, rebellions and and all this type of stuff Um, because that's, you, you, you have to liberate yourself from something that's, based on dehumanizing you and destroying your culture that's just foundational for human existence and so with george floyd to me this seemed to be within just the scope of something that inevitably is going to happen in the u.s Mm -hmm. and it always happens like we always have some sort of riot some sort of thing and and the narrative that we that america tries to project is that these riots are bad in some way, that they they are destructive to society. But as an African American, like we these riots and and protests and whatnot always happen due to a yearning to change America to make it equitable. So when you look at like the reason for why they happen, it's clearly a beneficial thing. It's clearly a good thing and it's inevitable. The question then goes into how successful will these be? like how yes. how long will it last? How much damage will happen? And with the George Floyd protest, the thing that's been most provocative is how many white Americans this seems to be their tipping point. like white people are freaking out. They're like, "Wow, because and I think if you look at it, like Trayvon Martin was twenty twelve so we're wow. talking like nearly a decade of videos. And, and marches and all this kind of stuff and maybe it took eight years of the consistency of these videos to to make it beyond a shadow of a doubt that black yeah. people have been correct and their frustrations and their provocations are are, are warranted and so yeah. with regards to george floyd the fact that it's so diverse and there's not really much if any debate as to whether the 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 justifications for the outrage are are warranted actually makes me a little more hopeful about this than previous ones. I can't predict
0: how it'll pan out, but
1: this definitely feels different.
0: You know, that was one of my initial thoughts, too, when watching the protest. It was like, you know, what's so different about this now that has, you know, so many white folks and other people of color, you know, out in the streets and rioting and looting and protesting right alongside us? You know, we've seen this. I have a vision of, you know, these things tend to come and go and ebb and flow. And I think that, you know, I I used to be of the argument that, you know. The more that we saw these things, the more we as Black people were becoming desensitized to it. So it would come up, people would die, we'd be outraged, and then outrage would subside. or Either we'd get a conviction or someone would be charged, and then it would go away, and it kind of ebb and flows. But now, I'm wondering if it's a, you know, because everyone was sitting at home, because everyone was angry, because everyone kind of saw it at the same time, because no one was doing anything, is it like even more of a uh, situation now than it had ever been before. Like, I'm not quite sure how much out of my purview of Blackness did this reach other people, if you get what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, I th- I think there's definitely some other cultural factors that have made, that have contributed to this bringing people outside the Black community into it. Like, clearly Donald Trump's election has mm-hmm. has made more... Uh, non-African Americans aware of like the hate that's been normalized in our society. You know, like there's been a rise in antisemitism. We have neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville. There's large conversations right now about, you know, the Confederacy and their statues and the lost cause. And I, and I think like a lot, this takes time. So I think a lot of it, you can attribute it to Barack Obama, not in that Barack Obama like personally said, we need to do X, Y, and Z. But I think he emboldened a lot of African Americans to put themselves in professional positions they may not have thought were accessible to them. And it also Mm -hmm. made like white businesses feel, even like in journalism, like there became a greater need for there to be African-American journalists. journalists because they need so, they need to have a, a one black person to at least talk about the first black president. Like it seems absurd to have a newsroom that's only white people talking about a black president and issues for the black community. Like that just doesn't make sense. And so this like subtle cultural shift that I bet increased the likelihood of of people of different backgrounds forming like friendships and professional relationships and all that kind of stuff over, we're talking, you know, since 2008. So like 12 years, like that's quite significant. And so, you know, like a lot of the white people that are protesting, like they have black friends, you know, like it's, it's not, it's not like, you know, if you look at the sixties where there'd be like Jewish people supporting African-Americans, like they didn't know the black people initially. They were like, we know what it's like to be oppressed because we experienced the Holocaust and, and also like our culture is based on fighting oppression. So we're joining with black people at a moral cause, you know? Right. But now it's kind of like, that person's my friend. Like my morality isn't to like some greater religious belief that I've been, it's like, no, like it's that's my friend. for people. Like, it's like you. I could, it, it's not a far-fetched idea that I could go out someplace and do something wrong and my, my friend who's black could be with me and we're both doing something that's not wrong or whatever mm-hmm. and he gets beat up and I'm treated okay. Like that's not right. I think like that, those thoughts are more in Americans' brains right now and
0: like that's quite significant and I think that makes this a little different. That's interesting because even thinking back to some of the outreach that's happened over the last couple of days, you know, there's been a lot of the check-ins, you know, of you know, how are you holding up? How are you getting through this? You know, what are your thoughts on it and everything. But then I've also been subject to those outside friends asking me, how am I doing and those that are outside of the culture mm-hmm. or outside of my race? And I have to, you know, debate with myself often about how honest are we, And how much do we double down on how much is this an issue right now? You know, for, I'm an entrepreneur, but many of my friends and many of the people that I've discussed this with work in offices and work in the corporate field. And so they get a lot of this outreach from their colleagues and they're reluctant to say how much this is affecting them or, you know, just, you know, what their true thoughts are of the matter. And some of those people have said that they feel more emboldened to actually say, well, now that you see it, I'm going to tell you exactly what my experience is. And then there are a lot of Black people that are still kind of dealing with formulating that voice to say to their white friends, like, this is what the issue is. And right. so I, I guess I wanted to ask in thinking about that, how does like ethnocidal culture across different cultural lines, not just for Black people to white people, but Black people to, you know, other people of color, you know, other African struggles of that diaspora and other people of color who have fought for their freedoms, how does that struggle individually for those cultures lend themselves to what we're trying to accomplish through the protest and what we're opening ourselves up to through protesting in the United States. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who um, is not Black, but she's also a person of color. And we were debating solutions. And my solution was based more in a education and then agitate and aggress where uh-huh. her philosophy was uh aggression from the beginning or you know this is a problem that cannot be solved through education so we have to aggress first and right. i thought to myself how much of her cultural experience defined her outlook in handling the problem the issue in that way and how does that relate to people coming into our fight right okay now that makes a lot of
1: sense so i i, I guess one thing if you, if you acknowledge ethnocide as existing, and which it clearly does, but that also means that the methods that African-Americans have used thus far have helped us like have incremental gains, but not the gains to like, com- to break ethnocidal oppression. And so that creates this weird dynamic where like if your reference points for how to create change are based... Within like the successes inside America, you actually don't have like a recipe for success. There's not a there's not an example right. of 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 getting it. But say you're, say you're Indian, all right, you're gonna have the idea like nonviolence can work. Gandhi did it, and we the British left. This is this is successful. Like we were able to get rid of the oppressors. That doesn't mean India is perfect now, but like they got rid of the oppressors using that structure. If you're, if you're Haitian, their philosophy is gonna be: let's just go in and burn all their houses down and push them into the ocean. See what happens. That also makes perfect sense if you like you live in the Caribbean. That's how the Caribbean did it a whole bunch. Right. Uh, so like clearly, your your where you live, your environment is gonna shape what the solutions you're. The, and the methods you're gonna envision. The right. the issue for the US, and it's a really profound one, is like we have been told that our society is the one that comes up with the solutions, that we're the best, There's, that clearly America can just fix it. But this problem that, you know, liberating yourself from ethnocidal oppression, we haven't done it before. Other places have, not because they're yeah. better, I think in a large extent it's just due to geography, like this country's gigantic, you know, if you have a rebellion in a much smaller country, it's easier to push everybody it's out. Less like,
0: yeah. It's less yeah. people to push out, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's less it's less territory to cover. Like the amount of like slave rebellions that people launched in Mississippi and Alabama, and then it's like, oh well, we're stuck. People from the next town are gonna come over and just squash us. We're done. Like geographically it doesn't matter. Like we're gonna lose. That's what happens when you have like a massive landmass and there's no way for you uh, support to come in and help you. It's completely yeah. different if you live in like Haiti or Jamaica <laughs> or Barbados or something. You, know? you um, know that
0: point makes me think of two things. It one makes me think of when you say environment, and we've talked about other people of cultures and how they approach the situation. But then that also made me think of how many of our own race and culture in the United States are split between the ways that we handle this. You know, some are saying that we riot, some are saying that we protest, some are saying that no, it's peaceful march and you know, vote, totally. vote, you know, it, it's split in that way, too. And, so
1: go ahead. Well, so like that split makes sense. If you look at the, the 1960s, there wasn't one theory uh, mm-hmm. of how to like have black liberation. There were many, many different theories. And if you are from New York, you're going to have a greater affinity to the narrative of like Malcolm X. If you're from the South, you're going to have a a large affinity to Martin Luther King. If you're from the West Coast, you're thinking about Black Panthers. You know, like, country's really big. There's going to be a lot of theories as to, like, how to accomplish success. The key thing now is to, like, acknowledge that, like, all of those theories in the 60s got us progress and got us, like, a return of the rights that we had won in Reconstruction that were taken away. But there's still needs to be thought being put forth as to like, what's a better structure than all of those. And maybe it's all of those combined into one with the name. Like, I don't know, but I I think one of the big things about this one that I find quite encouraging is I think we're having a very profound conversation, whether we fully like name it or acknowledge it about property and property rights and how like as a nation, they've always had the uh, concluded that it was okay to kill black people to save white property. Right now, we're saying that can no longer be the dynamic. Killing black people to save white property can no longer be the norm. And that upends hundreds of years of American policing. And yeah. that's massive. And then if you look and you say, like, that conversation is essentially happening in every state every day, mm-hmm. that's huge and then that also brings into question of like who cares if they loot it's just property if we're saying that black life is more important than property let them loot if the what if what you're going to do to those people for right. taking property was kill a black person
0: well now the thing you need to do is let them take that stuff because you can't kill a black person over it right so it's a it's a whole like kind of philosophical unlearning because it makes me think of you know all the things that we tie ourselves too, philosophically or just like the norms that we tie ourselves to and what people rally behind i think it's so easy and apparent to see that you know white people when tied to their culture i say that in, in quotation marks right <laughs> but they they align around the protection of property you know when you saw mm-hmm. like you know they'll they'll go and stand in front of target expecting black uh protesters and black people to approach them at with an issue so that they can protect their property, but right. Target never did anything for them, and and they're a consumer of Target as well. So, mm-hmm. what are you defending? You know, you're defending exactly. the ideology. You're defending you're defending what you think you're. I think to feel that you are culturally called to protect property and materials right. is a crazy thought.
1: Yeah, and that that is how like white Americans are largely indoctrinated to think. And like, it makes sense that they would think that today. Access to democracy in America was allocated via how much, whether you do or do, do not own property. right? And the most, action. and the most, and that was like, that was foundational. And then you throw in the fact that, you know, a lot of our founding fathers were slave owners whose livelihood was based around owning black people and considering them property. Like there's, there's a lot of white existence where like your value and your identity is associated Mm -hmm. to whether you do or do not own property. America really cares about home ownership. Plenty of other countries don't care about home ownership. ownership. People, it's completely normal in another country to rent the place you live for like 50 years. And like, and that people are looking for someone that could rent property for like a decade. Like that's a thing. In other places, that's that nobody would consider that even like remotely smart in America. If you're gonna rent something for that long, you you should buy it. You gotta buy it because like if you don't if you don't own something, then in America you're just not a person. And so I think white people have been indoctrinated with this idea, which I feel definitely stems from ethnocide, that their existence, their identity, is based on owning things, owning America, owning. Owning the space, like you know, when a what's it that Amy Cooper woman in New York yeah. that like you can that see called it, on the bird watcher. Exactly, you can see that when she was alone in that space, her relationship with it was: I own this space. I know that sign says that dogs can't walk around here, can't be like unleashed, but mm-hmm. I don't care. I own it. No one who's gonna tell on me. I own it right now. I psychologically own it. I'm gonna let my dog do whatever I want. And then a black guy walks in there and says. Uh, hey, white lady, you don't own this. There's a sign that's telling you what to do. You need to do it. And her response is, I'm going to use my authority as a white person to extricate this black person from the place that I psychologically own. And then I'll be safe again.
0: Psychologically own, yeah. (laughs)
1: yeah. (laughs) You know, like that's just like how white people think, which is just crazy to think. And like, there's also conversations happening right now about like black people that like to go running, where like when you run, you know that, you, you know, you might be viewed as a threat. And so you'll wear like a shirt that says Harvard or Princeton. So people will think that you're oh, like, yeah. not threatening, because now as a black person, you're running, and you may run into property that like another white person thinks they psychologically own. And therefore, right. they need to call the police to extricate you from public
0: property. <laughs> you know, right. Um, and so it's crazy. So that is, that is, that's crazy. That's super wild. And I actually have to meditate on that a little bit more after our conversation, because <laughs> it, it's the things that like, you know, a culture that's always played offense versus a culture that's always played defense. I don't even know what that looks like or feels like to have certain freedoms. And, right. And what that could mean for mm-hmm. uh, my higher level of thinking. Right. But, you know, as, as we've been discussing this and as you've gone through, you know, your emotions and your feelings and just, uh, you know, sorting out through your mind and analyzing what this is, I'm sure you've come up with some words and some language that, you know, applies. Yeah. Um, and, and so I want to know from you kind of, you know, what is on your, what has been on your mind in regards to the George Floyd protest, Breonna Taylor protest, Ahmaud Arbery protest, and words that we've been you know, mulling around on at the Sustainable Culture Lab and like how they apply to the situation at hand right now. And so like the first word that um I thought about and actually you reached out to me when we were talking about this like just last week was like, you know, is this a fricano revolution? And so, you know, is it a fricano revolution? And how about you like let our audience into like what a fricano is in case they don't know?
1: Yeah. I think it definitely could become a fricano revolution. I think it definitely looks like is you don't want to say it's a revolution you know too prematurely but it's definitely like looking like that and so uh but I guess the key thing to determine whether it is or isn't a frikano revolution is to like articulate and define what frikano means mm-hmm. um and so frikano is it's a word that that just like appeared in my mind like a bolt of lightning sometime in December last year and it's a word that I I use to describe African diaspora people. So, you know, me, Bakari, us. And and, and this is the, the, the thinking behind the word. And, and it, the word goes into our philosophy of ethnocide and eftopia and just the work of SCL. But with Fricano, if you understand that there's ethnocidal oppression happened at the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade, and that the goal was to destroy the culture of African people, well, to symbolize that, like I start with the word african because we were african people and then the the injection the forced ethnocide of on our people I symbolize that by taking the a off of african so that just like leaves Freecon, f r i c a n and that is the that's the step 1 of making the word fricano and then step 2 you have to look at it and say as ethnocide was destroying african culture by preventing us from speaking our languages, practicing our religion, wearing our hairstyles, uh, you know, you know, wearing traditional African clothes, tribal bonds and familial bonds are were shattered, and the whole purpose of this was to create a cultureless mass of people for like the European chattel slavery system. Well, if this cultural destruction's happening, you then have to go, what's the cultural bond that's now being forged amongst these African or free con people as their culture is getting destroyed. And that cultural bond is definitely going to be the desire of all of these people to liberate themselves from ethnocidal oppression. So the bond, culturally, at the at its onset, has been freedom. And so I symbolize that that bond by changing the F R I in Free con to F-R-E-E. And so now the word is like Free con. But this word's linguistically English, and ethnocide was perpetrated by the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, and the English. And so, to make it more linguistically inclusive, I add an O to the end mm-hmm. of uh, well, not just an O. Sorry, that I add an O, an A, yeah, right. an X, or an E to the end because with Spanish, uh, you know, there's there's gendered words, so uh, you can ha- you can put the X at the end. So you know, but also another. One that's happening in Latin America lies are putting an e at the end, which is like a gender neutral. Unlike in Spanish, none of these the o or the a, none of these like have dominance over the other. Like you know, and when you have a collection of people, you don't define that collection in the masculine. You can define that collection with the e, but I don't know, as a as a as a as a male the the cadence of frikano just like just like rolls off the tongue, and so I say frikano a lot, but that doesn't mean frikano has like supremacy over frikana or Free mm-hmm. kind of or Free Conane. Kind of um, and so that that's how the word come came into being. It was partially in, in like inspired by the word Chicano uh mm-hmm. too. And so by fricano, I I feel what it what it does is it gives African diaspora people uh, an identity that has less of an attachment to America's ethnocidal society. Because one of the big things that has always been something that Black people have to have to elevate and liberate ourselves from are the dehumanizing identifiers that ethnocidal white Americans have forced upon us. You know the inwards clearly one of them, Negro, colored, all that stuff. And I think as we've lived in in American society, we've liberated ourselves from each one of these identifiers, and now we have Black and African American, and those are good. But I don't think those accurately like define us especially with like linguistically black is supposed to be like a lowercase b so it's not even supposed to be a proper noun it's just supposed to be a color of a people not a culture of a people so at the very minimum black should be capitalized because it represents the culture of a people people with a culture not just a people who have a color and at the same time african-american i think speaks into like the narrative of being like almost like an immigrant and like our immigrant story is not an immigrant story. Like it sounds yeah. as though being African-American is the same as being Italian American or Japanese American or something like that's just not the case. And so I think fricano is like a, a, a natural progression that we need as a people to define ourselves accurately. And so, so that's where the word fricano came from. That's where I, how I think about it. And I think this as black people are literally fighting for freedom to liberate ourselves from like ethnocidal oppression because ethnocide was you know Dorf, ethnocide killed George Floyd yeah and so many other people I think this definitely looks like it could be like
0: a, a frecano revolution you know that's really interesting for me to hear because I think about all of the different back and forth conversations that you've seen or black opinions swirling around right now about you know should we be rioting or you know is protesting the right should we even be voting after this what is the role of allies and you have all these different opinions that swirl around and when you really dig in and think about what's going on or what the conversations are about it's about how much are you tied to the norms of what's been going on for so long for how many years so it's like, right. you know for so many to argue about like what this is it was like well rioting or looting for example you know there's a lot of people that are saying well that's not the right thing to do it we need to call for peace but they overlook the fact that kind of every societal cultural revolution that has happened pretty much in the world has re- resulted in some form of um, societal uprise, you know, yeah. or, or rioting, you know, and those changes happen and you have so many people that are tied to one identity of, of what they've been taught about how they got their liberation or how, what they've been taught about how they gotten here. Mm-hmm. That is now coming in contrast with where they think that we should be going and doing that and not necessarily acknowledging like what those real serious issues are that have been holding us back for so long
1: yeah no it's what what's happening is we have a language that empowers people to point out the flaws but not a language to articulate what the solutions are and so you know clearly it's really easy to say don't burn buildings easy looting's bad easy everyone can say that's bad but if you know what your end goal is and you know why you're doing something and it's like a something transcendent, something revolutionary, well now it would be easier to justify why this action that which may be unconventional now could be conventional. And like I'm not saying that everyone should go around looting and burning stuff. Like that's that's crazy. But I think one of the key things in this this Revolutionary struggle that's happening is America has always had a standard of valuing property, specifically white property ahead of black life and we the 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 police and just and civilians you know white vigilantes have felt that they were allowed to use lethal force and kill black people to save white property and I think America now, it's harder for people to articulate the legitimacy and the the correctness of that stance. And so the destruction of property in many ways right now to me looks like a provocation of like, it's like you're daring people to articulate that this building that's just filled with stuff that's insured and can get replaced is more valuable than the human being. Even if that human being did something wrong, like I think that's harder to articulate and the fact that America is struggling to articulate that is, is revolutionary. And so it, I think it's all part of the same, the same struggle. And so when you look, I think the language of Fricano kind of makes it easier to, to bridge that gap where like, clearly if you can have a, a revolution or a, a seismic change, and it's just entirely peaceful, it's just, it's just mm-hmm. harmony and you don't have any tension or whatever, and it's just nice, and you have changed. who's not going to want that? But the aspect that there may be um, the destruction of some amount of property to provoke people to see that people are more important than that property, thats that's significant
0: for America. Yeah. You know, there's another word that we discussed recently that kind of I think plays off of fricano, or maybe is another side of this aspect. But we talked about the word "on." Oh, Uh, yeah, yeah, the French word "on." The the French word "on," which means everyone. Um, And so, how does that play in regard to like the fricano revolution?
1: So, like the French are. So, one thing that's really neat is we talk about like culture and whatnot. Like, if you talk about French people now, revolution and protest and going on strike is just a foundational cultural right that they forged from the revolution. Like French and revolutions weren't like the norm prior to the French revolution, you know? Um, and, and, you know, once they made that, they had, you know, the, they created their own constitution with the, like the rights of, like, of dignity, rights of, of man. And so revolution's really big in France. And so to go back to the word, This is a pronoun that exists in French that doesn't exist in English. And it means one, we, us, everyone. And it's it's like a pronoun that talks about in like a really, it's only two letters. It's just spelled O-N. The duality of existence. Where like as an individual, we are also part of a collective all the time. And how you conjugate it, it's really... It's a mixing of the plural and the collective. There's this French phrase that's quite common. It's on y va. And it's, uh, you know, it's O-N. Next word is just Y. And then the next word is V-A. And V-A means go. And va is the singular of one of the singular pronouns. It's for like he, she, of go. But mm-hmm. if you translate on y va, it's let's go. Or we go there. Mm-hmm. And so it's this fascinating word that how you use it all the time merges the singular and the plural, the individual and the collective. And I think, and like the fact that America doesn't have a word like that, like we we we, we use the word one sometimes, but like Mm -hmm. it's not the same. I think it inclines people to see their connectedness to one another, which clearly is a revolutionary thing where like if you see somebody Being mistreated, and you've been articulating just via the word "on" your connectivity to them, the entirety of your life. That's going to make you more inclined to have empathy with that person, to stand up and 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 fight on their behalf. And like I remember, I I I don't know if I was now I wasn't in France at this time, but I was studying, and they had some strike regarding like the rate, like the lowering of the retirement age. And there were like high school kids protesting that their retirement age was going to drop from, I don't know, like 65 to 63, something like that. And they're like, if you're going to drop it, like my grandparents have been working so long, you can't, you can't, they're going to raise it. Sorry, they're going to raise it. Sorry, they're going to raise it. They've been working so long. How can you like, and if you do this, how long is retirement going to be for me? And to have like teenagers already have that connectivity to like, you know, senior citizens. America doesn't think like that. And so I think this, I, you know, it's hard to say how much one word influences a whole society. But the fact that they just have a word they use all the time that is
0: singular and plural, I think is profound. Yeah, it's profound to think that, you know, they think in a way of what's good for me is what is what's good for everyone. Right. And And that's kind of, you know, what a lot of politicians who advocate for black rights, you know, that's kind of like the spin that they have to put on it is like, you know, well, what's good for the black community? would be helpful to everyone because once it becomes policy, it's, it's accessible to everyone. Right. You know, and, and so if you think about it in that way, then it's always going to be equitable because we're always thinking about what's but,
1: in, in community. is similar. But
0: like in English, we
1: have to use a whole paragraph or like exactly. a book to articulate
0: it. Like they have a word that's two letters. Right. So because much easier. Because if you think about it like this, is it used so much that they that they have to have a two-letter word for it. <laughs> it's just, it's like, it's so, such a part of it. They have to have a word for it. It's such a part of the culture. Exactly.
1: Have have like it's, it. right. they say all, all the time, all the time. And so like, if, if you make something that's really complex and profound, so simple that everyone's just going to use it and with, and, and do use it and think about it without knowing that they're thinking about
0: it. Yeah. Profound. So now that we have, like, this new language applied to this situation, um, this language that we've been mulling on and thinking about, how does it, what steps do we now take? Or how do we apply the language to building a new culture, building an utopia? Oh, there's
1: so many steps. Um, but not. I, I don't mean, like, so many as in, like, it's a, like a, uh, an obstacle. But you, you have to, you just have to live it and, and like, you know, being alive, that's the thing we all do, but there's countless things involved with being alive. And so like the, so many steps is like that. So like a key thing that, you know, what we're trying to do and, you know, podcasts is one way of of attempting this is just use the language, Mm -hmm. just, just say the words out loud and see if people, if they resonate with people. And that's, that's kind of what SEL has been doing from the beginning. You know, we, we would start saying ethnocide and see if people understood it. They did start saying evtopia, see if they understood it. They do. We started saying fricano. Boom. We have a newsletter with a, a new word every week that people can, can get. And, and I'm already having people like reply, you know, send email saying, Oh, this word was great. And they're using like a word of the week from like two weeks ago in this one. And so the way to to get the language to start making that that good place is to 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 say it but then there's all sorts of other like levels that you can do like we we are positioning ourselves as a cultural think tank so like this language that we're cultivating now that's not just language that we want to use in the streets in our everyday lives or on podcasts like that's language that should be applied to policy like like the word ethnocide Is the the sibling the linguistic sibling of genocide? Like that word has become foundational to international law. Like there are whole legal structures based around genocide and 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 preventing it and combating it. That genocide's just a word that Raphael Lemkin thought up in 1944. So, ethnocide is also a word that we can then apply to policy and like criminal stru you know like legal structures, and by doing so. You you could have those, those macro changes. So I guess the way that you have to look at is you have to have, so like for a word to be really good, it has to be, it has to have value if I'm saying it to one person, but also if I'm saying it to like a thousand people, a million people in an article, like it has to be micro and macro. Mm -hmm. And so like ethnocide and the words that we use, the goal is for them to be micro and macro. And so that's how you make the change. So we have to do like the micro things, which are like a podcast. But this podcast ideally would be like micro and macro. Like Bakari and I are just having a conversation, but this is a conversation that That countless people can listen to. And so there's a lot of of ways.
0: It's what you're saying is like it's lifestyle. It's two things. It's lifestyle and practice. And also now that we have the word, we can now – create the steps to get there because now we have the end goal like you said we have the end goal in mind now we can create the steps to get there and we can implement lifestyle practice philosophy to build into it
1: totally it's like like this so evtopia is a great example of this the word utopia means non-existent good place that's just what it means Mm -hmm. europeans have decided have erroneously said that it means good place but it by definition does not so there's been like a continent of people who've been sailing around the world, Looking trying to make exist. good places that don't exist, and they've succeeded in that. It's a whole culture that doesn't have a word for good place. Yeah. So how are you going to make a good place if your language doesn't even have a word that actually means good place? Like you won't you won't be able to do it. You, the the baseline you have to have a word for. What, what you aspire to do, what your practice will be. If you can't do it, then how can you aspire to be it? You, it's just right. like, it's impossible. And so, so yeah, having the proper language so that you can articulate what you would like to do is essential. I think the most profound thing is, I think America in many ways, people don't have the language to articulate what they would like to do. we feel and know what we would like to do, but we have like a linguistic vacuum when it comes to like the prevalence of those types of words. And and also since we're so driven by like money and capitalism and like dehumanizing people to make money, if you have language that doesn't prioritize monetary gain or doesn't have like some tone of dehumanization in it, it just doesn't seem legitimate. It seems foreign and strange and like hippie or something and so it's you know it's it's just it's a very profound issue the absence of language that we have in 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 america
0: yeah it it, it is a profound issue to have because it's it's literally it's like um like which is it's unknown unknown almost yeah no it's known unknown you know it's like i know how it feels but i don't know what to call it you know right and that like from getting anywhere <laughs> Yeah, like it,
1: it, it. I think it starts as an unknown unknown, and then it becomes a known unknown. And at some point, someone has to like make that unknown into something that's known. And I guess that's what SCL is trying to do. Like that thing that you feel and see but can't articulate it. Well, let's make a word, and let's let's just do it. Not a brand, not a thing that's making money. We're making the words, and then that philosophy will give a foundation for making things better.
0: Well said. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's been the first episode of Language for Liberation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Oh, cool. Oh,
1: yeah. I, I've I've been I've enjoyed it, and you know, Fricano is definitely hit with the theme because uh, oh, let me be a nerd real quick again. One thing that's also funny is like English is a combination of like of romance and Germanic languages. Mm-hmm. So we have like two words for the same idea most of the time, but those words still like don't really have as much meaning as they should. So like, you know, liberation and freedom are the same thing. One's just, uh, like freedom is Germanic and liberation is ro- is romance, but yeah. we don't have the language for that freedom. We have to make that word. And so like. Fricano is like one of those linguistic manifestations that I I feel is necessary for us to even articulate this this movement and another thing that I think is key is is I've talked to people who aren't African American who really like the word freckano and they want to say want to say like could we be freckano yeah like we have a philosophical cultural desire to liberate ourselves from ethnocide could I be a freckano without being African American and you know uh, the answer right now is sure maybe like I don't know the words evolving but it does create that language for allyship mm-hmm. that like racial language. Doesn't include because like race is static, so you either are or aren't that race. But you, you, a whole array of people can be a part of a culture regardless of race. And so, Fricano, even though it's very specific to the experiences of, of diaspora people, it is it's actually more inclusive to uh, to non diaspora people and for people who have a, a cultural commitment, desire to uh, liberate
0: ourselves from ethnocidal oppression so amazing so thanks man yeah For, thanks uh, going on today where can we find more information about the sustainable culture lab
1: <laughs> oh you- yeah no you can go to our website which is just scl.community and check out all of our stuff we have facebook twitter all of those platforms you if i also write lots of publication writing publication so i'm you know i'm barrett Pittner. i'm the only one with that name so google me and you'll find my stuff on the Daily Bees of the BBC. But yeah, for SCL, go to our website, scl.community, and you'll get a lot of information about our work and connect to us on social media platforms.
0: Dope. Well, thank you for joining us again. Uh, this has been your host, Bakari Ibrahim, Chief Storyteller of the Sustainable Culture Lab, and we'll catch you on another episode of Language for Liberation. And-